there was a belief or an idea that the way the family went was the way the culture would go. The way the family went, the way society would go. If the family was defined by chaos, if the family was broken apart, then the community and the society would be in chaos. The community and the society would be broken apart. In a biblical worldview, we would look at the, the family and we would say the family is the building blocks of society. So families are the building blocks of society, and we'd agree with that ancient Roman belief, that ancient Roman idea that the way the family goes, the way the culture goes. And I think we see this. We see this currently today in areas or in cultures where the family has been torn apart. There are cities that do not value the family, that do not value structure within the family, and we see in those cities, in those areas, chaos. But we also see areas, we see cities that value the family, they value structure and order in the family, they are designed to help build the family and make families secure, and we see in those cities, in those cultures, all around the globe, we see those cities and societies flourishing. So we would say, we would agree with ancient Rome, we would agree that the way the family goes is the way the culture would go. So because ancient Rome highly valued structure in the family, they developed what's called house codes. House codes were basically how the family should be structured. And they had very specific house codes on how the family was structured. Now let's say you're in this Roman Empire You've been raised on these house codes. You've known these house codes. And you come to know Christ. And Christ becomes the center of your life. All, everything in your world will now revolve around Christ. You've realized that Christ changes everything. And that's what we've been studying in Colossians, right? By him and for him. That this whole world was created by Christ and for Christ. And then we started learning how this plays out. And one of the heresies that the, at the Colossian church was, do not taste, do not handle, do not touch. And it was this whole idea that you could become more righteous, you could become better through legalistic rules, that you could earn your righteousness, that you could earn your values if you did these certain things. And the po point Paul drives home is, no, Christ has made you righteous. Christ has imputed his righteousness to you. You cannot become more, you cannot become less righteous in Christ's eyes. And then we start getting into how does this affect us? In chapter 3, we learned this analogy of take off and put on. And it was a clothing analogy. The first week we got into it, I wore some raggedy old clothes that almost no one recognized. And I thought I might need to start dressing up. Obviously, I didn't take that too much to heart. But, but it was take off the old clothes. Take off those old behaviors, those legalistic behaviors, which Paul says has no use against the flesh. That's the trick of legalism, is when we are stuck in legalists, which, by the way, we are all recovering, recovering legalists. 
legalism is the world's operating system that you earn your value through certain beliefs or certain behaviors. We see this everywhere, don't we? We see people thinking that they are more value ju valuable just because they hold certain beliefs. Or some people think that they're more valuable because they do certain things. In the Christian world, some people think they're more valuable because they have a certain theology and they look down their nose at other Christians who don't have such a high theology. We see it everywhere because it is the world's operating system. So we are surrounded by legalists and as Christians, we are all recovering legalists. And so we're to put, put off those old clothes, which Paul says has no value against the flesh. And that's the joke of legalism, is we think if we can just be rigid enough, if we can just follow the rules closely enough, if we can just white-knuckle our lives, holding so closely to these rules, that we will overcome sin on our own. And Paul says that has no value. Do not taste, do not handle, do not touch, has no value against the flesh. And we walked, for two weeks we walked through these flashcards with this idea that legalism and license are both part of the flesh. So if you've ever known somebody that was super special spiritual person, you know that person that did all the stuff. They did all the super special spiritual things. They came to church. Every time those doors were open, they were in there. They were doing all the things seemingly right. And then one day you learned that they were in over their heads in sin. They were steeped in sin. And you thought to yourself, how could they do such a 180? They were the super special spiritual person. And now they're steeped in sin. How could this happen? And we learned that they didn't do a 180. That before they were operating in the flesh to control the flesh. That's what legalism was all about. Trying to control the flesh through fleshly means. And they just had another expression of the flesh. So the flesh was really controlling them. They were trying to gain control. They learned that they couldn't control the flesh through fleshly means. So they just gave in to the flesh. There wasn't a 180 at all. They were operating out of the flesh then, they're operating out of the flesh now. And so what we learned was the opposite of the flesh, which expresses itself through legalism and license, is being controlled by the Spirit. Being controlled by the Spirit. And so we take off those old legalistic clothes with those old behaviors. And we put on the new clothes. The clothes that Christ has provided for us. The clothes that function with compassionate hearts, with gentleness, with kindness, with humility, Bearing with one another, tolerating one another, and forgiving one another in love. But the question that the Colossian church might have, after going through all of this intense theology, this almost world-changing theology, the question that they might have is, so how does this affect the house codes that I've grown up with? How does this affect the house codes that I know?
Does this even change the house codes? And that's what we'll get into today as we continue our study by him and for him, a study through Colossians. We're going to walk through 3.18 through 4.1. Before we even get into this, uh, just right off the bat, we will see that there are three couplets addressing three different relationships. Those relationships are husbands and wives, children and fathers, slaves and masters. What is radical about these couplets is that Paul addresses the master of the house, the husband, the father, the master. In ancient Rome, the others would have been seen as his property. The wife, the child, the slave was seen as his property. So he could do whatever he wanted with them. They had rules. The house codes always addressed the wives, the children, the slaves. But he didn't. The house codes never addressed the master. So just the fact that Paul addresses the man of the house was a radical idea. And, we'll, and it will impact how we view each relationship. So what Paul does here is he takes the idea of house codes and he reformulates them to fit the idea of how they should be in light of Christ's supremacy. These house codes have been transformed in light of Christ's lordship so that every member of the house, including its male head, is to live under Christ's lordship above all else. In this respect, we'll see the word Lord occurs eight times in this section and the charge to regard Jesus as Lord in what one does occurs explicitly six times. And the idea is that Jesus has changed you. He's changed you from the inside out so that you can live this new way. With that in mind, let's read. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. Fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have also have a master in heaven." All right, so let's dig in. Wives, submit to your husbands. So this is the first couplet to be addressed is husbands and wives. And wives are the first ones to be addressed. So wives, submit to your husbands. This command for the wife to submit was pretty standard in the Roman house codes. This would not have been a shock. Most Romans reading this would have been like, yep, this is the same old stuff right here. In a parallel passage in Ephesians, Paul appeals to what theologians call creation order for this, for the submission of wives to husbands. The crea creation order means that God made man first and gave him charge 
or we could say gave him headship over woman. Now some scoff at this and hate this very idea. I think in our culture today, people hate this very idea for two reasons. The first one is submission has become a bad word. Submission has become a bad word. And the second one is our idea of authority is twisted. I think submission has become a bad word because our idea of authority has become twisted. So because we have twisted God's design for authority, that has made submission become this bad word, this bad thing that we don't want to do. So submit in the Greek... The word uh, originally was a military term used to designate being under the authority of someone else. As the word made its way into civilian life, it started to mean willingly cooperating with someone else. So it carries this idea that you're not fighting over authority. In our fallen state, we love to fight over authority. Who's the alpha male? What about an alpha female? Is that a thing? We all want to be top dog. We all want to have authority. And this very word implies that we're not going to fight over authority anymore. So you're not trying to usurp someone else's authority, but you are willingly cooperating with them. And submission is something that we do all the time. So even if we don't like the term submission, we submit all the time. Do you obey the speed limit? Some of you don't. Some of you just shrugged like, nope, sorry, Aaron, you don't have me there. Do you at least stop at stop signs? You probably obey some traffic laws, right? Obeying traffic laws is your way of submitting to the government's authority. The government has authority over how traffic is going to be controlled. You obeying traffic laws is submitting to their authority. It is recognizing that they have some authority in this realm, and you are going to submit to that authority. How about do you stand in line at the grocery store? Do you stand in line at a movie theater? Or do you just walk right in front of the line? You're one of those people. There is no line. No, for the most part, we stand in line, right? There's almost this like unspoken authority of courtesy that we submit to. And part of the reason why we submit to that unspoken authority of courtesy is because we know the chaos that will ensue if we don't have some type of courteous system. Have you ever been in a culture where there is no unspoken authority of, of courtesy, where you stand in lines? I have. It's chaos. You are. Uh, I felt really bad when I cut that old lady off in line. Well, I wasn't in line. There was no line. That was the problem. I thought there was a line. And I kept on getting crowded out by people all over the place. And finally, I had just had enough. I'm I need to get through this gate. So I had to quit being polite, and I bumped kind of an old lady out of the way so that I could get through. I felt really bad, but if I didn't do it, those old ladies were just going to keep bumping me back, you know? 
So when we don't have this unspoken authority of courtesy, it kind of devolves into chaos, right? We know that. We recognize that. And so even though there is no like true authority here with, with uh, uh, lines, in America, there is an authority of lines that was unspoken, and we see it as common courtesy, and we know the consequences if we don't follow that. Ignoring God's created order has consequences as well. When we ignore God's created order and we think that there is no authority in the house, that God didn't create an authority structure in the house that creates chaos in our house. Now, we might not recognize it as fast as lines. We might not recognize the chaos as fast as when we disobey traffic rules. But that doesn't mean that it won't bring chaos. When we ignore God's created order, it will bring chaos into our world. So over time, we will see the erosion of the family, the very building blocks of society, and that will eventually lead to the erosion of society. So we see our view of submission is messed up. And I really think the root cause of our view being messed up of submission is that our view of authority is really messed up. The world's idea of authority is ruling with an iron fist. It's forcing others to submit to me so that I can meet my own needs. The world's idea of authority is putting myself first and seeing others as objects to meet my needs. And that idea of authority is backwards and upside down. God's idea of authority, how he designed authority, is the one an authority is supposed to give up their own to serve the other. And we see this example in Christ. He, who has all authority in the universe, who created the world, how the world was created by him and for him, instead of lording his authority over us, instead of using and abusing us to please himself, which is exactly what all of the other small g gods throughout history have done, right? When humans make a god, they make him in our image. And so as you read Greek mythology, what do you read? You read about all these gods that are using and abusing humans for their own pleasure. And why is that? Because they have a messed up idea of authority. So instead of using us and abusing us to please himself, he came and he died in our place. He used his authority to redeem us and free us from our own sin and our own rebellion. So if everyone who had authority exercised their authority like Christ exercises his authority, we would have no problem with the word submission. But because the world has twisted authority, we have de 
valued submission. So the command is, based on Christ's role and rule in your life, you should value submission and you should submit. Wives, submit to your husbands. And then he gives a little disclaimer here. As is fitting in the Lord. I think there's two ideas that kind of flow with this, with this statement, as is fitting in the Lord. The first is due to the fall, we see the family unit involved in a power struggle. So before the fall, there was the creation order, and authority and submission were lived out in harmony and in peace. After the fall, there became a power struggle in the house. I think we kind of see this, even like a, a silly example. We see this in the secular world, in the dating secular world. So, when Jen and I started dating 13, four, almost 14 years ago, uh, I hadn't dated in a long time, and I had no clue what I was doing. I didn't know what, I, I just admit, I had no clue what I was doing. So I talked to some of my friends for advice, and one of the bits of advice I got was, you can't call her for at least three days. Has anyone else heard that? Anyone heard that piece of advice? And it was kind of like this idea of, if you call her too soon, you will have given, off, you will have given her the power Oh, in the relationship. Because then she'll know that you like her. And so there's, like, right off the bat, it was formulated as this, like, power struggle. And I see this all the time when talking to secular people about their dating strategies. Is you don't want to give up too, you don't want to let them have too much power within this relationship. Otherwise, they're going to rule and they're going to dominate you. And so we see this power struggle living out even in, like, just silly little dating things like don't call her for three days, which I followed that advice. Later on, I learned that was really bad advice. I should have just called her the second I wanted to call her, which was later on that night. So all that to say, we see the power struggle still, don't we? We see this power struggle. But in Christ, we can let go of our power struggle. We can go back to how it was supposed to be. So this statement has two ideas attached to it. That it is fitting for the wife to live in submission to the husband because that is the way God designed it. Quit fighting for authority. Stop having the power struggle. I think it's also important really quickly that we specify this is not God devaluing women. This is not saying God can't do stuff. The limitation on a woman here is a limitation on authority. So we can have women in church and in the family who are very active and very involved. We see plenty of examples throughout Scripture. From Deborah to Dorcas, we see examples of women who are active and involved. So he's not saying women can't be active and involved. But he is saying that there is a structure that he has created the family with. And we will do better to live out in God's design for the family. 
So God created the idea of husbands having authority over the wife to reveal his own relationship with the church. And that is the picture. Us submitting to Christ and Christ taking care of us. When we have marriage, when we have marriages that have the women submitting and the husbands loving, it reveals to the world our relationship with Christ. That as believers, each one of us should be submitting to Christ as he builds us up. So the second idea of this statement, as is fitting in the Lord, is to submit as long as it's in line with Jesus. So submission is always to God first. Thus, if the husband is asking you to do anything that is against God, then you should obey God rather than man. I like to call this an exclusion clause, right? And I think it's important to bring this up because I have seen men abuse this term submission because they're abusing their authority. And I have seen men who have manipulated and told women, you just need to submit to me as I command you to do something that is, that is against God and against his word. And what did the woman do? She said, well, it's clear in Scripture, I have to submit. So although I don't want to, I will submit. And I will do this thing that is against God. So as is fitting in the Lord has two ideas to it. One is quit the power struggle, but two is as long as it's in line with what God has already commanded you. The submission clause exists for the woman whose husband is asking her to disobey God. And in that case, then you must obey God first. So the second part of this couplet is husbands. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. As we covered earlier in Roman house codes, the wives were always addressed, not the husbands. So just the fact that Paul is addressing the husband would have been radical. Would have been radical for, uh, for a house code to have the husbands addressed. And that's not even getting into how Paul addresses the husbands. But first, before we even get into what he says, let's just specify what he doesn't say. Notice that he doesn't demand that you put your woman that you put your wife in subjection. That's not the demand here. Husbands, if you are using the submit card, that means you are missing something in how you are uh, leading your household. Submission is the wife's responsibility. You are not responsible for her submission. And your command to love is not dependent on her submission. So your job then is to love her. This term love is agape. We've covered it quite a bit. And it's choosing to love. It is a self-sacrificial choice to love the other person. It is putting their needs before your own. You are supposed to give up your ideas of happiness for yourself for her own. 
This can play out really simply in lots of little ways. Take her to places she wants to go. Eat the food she wants to eat. These are simple things, but they're also very revealing things. When you are putting your needs above hers, you are disobeying this command. When you are putting your happiness above hers, you are disobeying this command. So husbands, love your wives. And the second part of this is, do not be harsh with them. This idea of being harsh with them is exercising an authority in a way that is harsh or oppressive, in a way that might cause resentment or bitterness. Do not be harsh with them. Do not exercise your authority in an oppressive way that would cause resentment or bitterness in your wife. That is the world's way of using authority. The world's way of using authority is to be harsh, to be oppressive. Obey my authority. It's not that. Instead, we are to use our authority to help our wives flourish and thrive. That is why God has given you authority, husbands. It's not for your own happiness. It's not for your own needs to be met. God gave you authority to build up your wife. God gave you authority to help your wife flourish and thrive. Husbands, this is one of your greatest assignments in life. That you would live a self-sacrificing life in such a way that your wife becomes better. That your wife becomes more of who God created her to be. Once again, in the corollary passage in Ephesians, uh, it shows us that God designed it this way to reveal his relationship with the church. He is the husband, we are the wife. He has headship over us. And he doesn't beat us up, he doesn't use his headship to beat us up, but to nourish us and to build us up. Our world has such a wrong idea of authority as an idea of micromanaging and controlling, but really it is giving and building. So husbands, choose to love your wife. And instead of being harsh and oppressive, using your authority to force submission, give yourself up for her. Choose to love your wife, to build her up, so she can be everything God has created her to be. And if you do your job correctly, it makes her job easier. But it also paints a picture to the world of who Christ is and who we are. When we place our wives' needs ahead of our own, it shows the world God's love for us. And that's the way God designed it. So then he moves on to the second couplet. He specifically addresses fathers because they were the ones in authority. And the second couplet uh, involves children and fathers. So picking up in verse 20. 
Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So once again, this would have been normal to read in any Roman house codes, except for typically it would be parents, make sure your children obey. Parents, make sure your children obey. So there's, there's a big difference here, and one is that he addresses the children, not the parents. So the idea was, in the Roman households, parents, you better make sure your kids fall in line. Because if we have disorderly kids, they will be disorderly adults, and then we will have a disorderly society. So parents, if you do not force your kids and beat your kids into submission so that they obey these rules, then later on in life, our, our society will fall apart. So that was the idea. But notice the difference here in that he addresses the children. First, this gives children value. He doesn't say, parents, make sure your kids are obeying. He addresses the kids saying, children, you are also part of the saints. Children, you are also beloved by God. Children, you have also been redeemed. You are also a new creation. Thus, this is how you should live it out. Children, you are valued by God. So this is how you should live it out. They're not just some demographic that needs to be dealt with until they reach a certain age. They're also saints. And this is unique from the Roman households because children were seen as property. Fathers could beat their children. They could sell them into slavery. Fathers could even kill their own kids without any repercussion. So for them to be valued in such a way as to be addressed, as if to say, you too are holy, you too have value, was radical. But what was even more radical is what Paul writes next in verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Once again, it would have been unheard of for the house codes to address the father. He was the patriarch. The children were his property. How dare anyone tell him what to do with his property? And that is the world's operating system. A system of authoritarianism. A system that only valued the ones in charge. God's system is not that way. It has people in charge to build others up. So of course God is going to address those in charge, those with authority. And so he addresses the father and he tells them, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. The idea is... Do not rule over them. Do not exercise your authority over them in such a way that they lose heart and become broken people. Or there's another outcome when you rule in such a way that they become discouraged, and that is that they give up and they rebel. When they realize that there's no way they're ever going to please their father. When they realize there's no way they will ever have any value in his eyes. When they realize that all they're going to be is one big disappointment after another to their dad. They will either give up or they will rebel in such a way. And both are horrible outcomes. 
So we are not to rule over our children in such a way that they become discouraged. Well, that's great. That's the not. That's what we shouldn't do. So what is it that we're supposed to do? And I think it is. We go back through chapters 1 and 2, knowing that we are supposed to represent the Father to our kids. And we look through chapters 1 and 2, how the Father loves us, how the Father gives us grace, how the father is not be- Father's love is not based on our performance, but on who He is and who we are because of who He is. And we love our kids like that. And when we mess up, which we will mess up, you as a parent, you will mess up. So when we mess up, we ask for forgiveness. Because our readiness to repent also reveals that we need God's love. And it points our kids away from a legalistic structure where we hide our sin and pretend it doesn't exist. And it models for them repentance and reconciliation. I think a great test to know if you are raising your kids with God's grace or if you are raising them harshly, if you are raising them in a way that's provoking them, lest they be discouraged, a great test is when they mess up, do they run to you or do they run from you? When your kids mess up, parents, do they try to hide it from you in fear of your reaction? Or do they come to you knowing that you are there to help restore them and reconcile them? If they are running from you, you are raising them in a way that is provoking them and discouraging them. If they are running to you, that means you are raising them in a way that is offering grace. The next couplet is bondservants and masters. Picking up in verse 22. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So the first thing that we need to notice is once again, it would have been very common for house codes to address the slaves. That was nothing new. So before we even get into this application, I think it is worth to note that this is not a commentary on whether or not slavery was okay. They were living in a culture where slavery had always existed. For the people in ancient Rome, slavery was a way of life. No one had known any different. So this is not an argument for or against slavery. This is simply Paul laying out the best application for the audience's circumstance. In the church at Colossae, there were slaves. They needed to know how to live out this theology. That was their greatest concern. So Paul addresses their concern. Based on this theology, here's how you should live. So once again, this would not be uncommon for Roman households, households, except the recognition that these are simply earthly masters. That's it. They're just here on earth. They're not your true master. No matter what the circumstance, 
of this world brings, our real Master is in heaven. That my life is really being lived for Him. And that gives us the motivation to live out whatever assignment we might have. So Paul emphasizes this idea next. He goes on. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work hardly as for the Lord and not for man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So the motivation for excellence in work is do everything as if you are doing it for God. God sees and God rewards. Sometimes we might feel like we're being treated unfairly. Sometimes it's true, we are being treated unfairly. Our motivation for excellent work is knowing God will reward us, even when we are being treated unfairly. And then he begins in verse 25 to address the master. Now, most people don't pick up on that because it still seems, to a certain extent, he's still addressing the slave. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. So he is actually giving a warning here to the master. If you are doing wrong, if you are mistreating your slave, you'll be paid back. This is a stern warning. And not only is it a stern warning, but, but followed with it is there is no partiality. So in Roman culture, there were ideas that some people were better than others. The masters, better than the slaves. Some people could get away with more because they were better. And what he's saying here is, there is no partiality with God. Slaves are not worse than their masters. Masters are not better than their slaves. But even more important, I think, is that slaves and masters were not a part of God's original design. God's original design is that we would be equals. That we wouldn't divide ourselves by the haves and have-nots, by the slaves and the masters, but that we would see each other as image bearers of God. That we would see each other as His original masterpieces. And that is how the church is supposed to operate. There is no hierarchy here. No one better than the other. So you just came to know Christ. Welcome to the family. You're no better, you're no worse than everyone else here. The missionary that's been working their entire life in the field is not more righteous and therefore more better than the prostitute that just gave her life to Christ last night. It's important for us to know that. The person that has lived their lives according to the word, that's amazing. That's great. You're no better than the person that lived in complete rebellion that just gave their life to Christ right now. You are in the same in God's eyes. So Christians love to separate themselves by theological positions. And it started just as an easy way to identify theologies that you could agree with and churches you might want to join. But because we are all recovering legalists, soon it crept in that some of us are better than others because we have better 
theology. And that's wrong. There is no partiality with God. All the ways we try to separate ourselves out to show how God really loves us is directly against God and directly against how the church should operate. So then Paul directly addresses the master in chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. So the idea here is that you should be representing God to your slave. How does God treat you? Go back to the first two chapters. Read through them. How does God treat you? That's the way you should be treating your slave. Now we could bring this forward to present day and we could address employees and employers. Employees, do everything that you do as if you are doing to God, even if your employer is unfair. You can still work with excellence, knowing God will give you a greater reward. Employee, employers, how does God treat you? What kind of grace has God given you? That is how you should be treating your employees. So this section all centers around the idea that because Christ has so radically changed us, we should live radically different lives. The world's operating system is one that breaks us into groups and assigns different values based on differences. But we should no longer live that way. And we should no longer be living just for ourselves, having a fight for power, lording our authority over others, or trying to skirt our responsibilities. We live radically different lives by putting others' needs before our own where we view authority that we have in our own life as opportunity to represent Christ to others. We flip the world's idea of authority on its head by serving others and building them up. But the only way we can actually do this is by realizing that he did it first for us. He took these worn, raggedy sinners who are wearing worn, old clothing, who felled over and over again and rebelled over and over again. And because he loves us with such a great love, he gave our, his life for us that we would be redeemed and built up in him. Oh Lord, we thank you so much. We realize that we have used and abused our authority over and over again, that we have been caught up in legalism and it creeps back into our life so often. And yet you have rescued us from all of that. You have an original design for the family. And we pray that you would help us to quit the power struggles. To quit lording authority over others to use the authority you've given us in a way to build others up, that they would be that original masterpiece you created them to be. We pray that you would help us to stop skirting our responsibility in places that we need to submit 
that we would glorify you in our work. And we realize that the only way we can really live all of this out is by going back to what you have done and reminding ourselves over and over again of who you are and who we are because of who you are. In your name we pray. Amen.